here we are. Somebody remind me about my mask when I'm done if I forget it. It is the final Sunday of this summer. Final Sunday of the summer months, in any case. I don't know about the whole equinox thing and how that's all figured out. All I know is it's the last Sunday in August, uh, which according to my preaching calendar means today I'm going to conclude the series we've been in all summer long. This is our last time to look at Winnie the Pooh on the screen. We are done with the sweet spot. Somebody pray for Jenna. She loves Winnie the Pooh, and Winnie's going away from her worship experience. I'm hoping that throughout the summer you have appreciated just kind of the opportunity we've taken to, to think critically, that's always important, right? Think critically, to think carefully about the spiritual habits that we all have. We've talked this summer about a lot of different things, a lot of different things that we've said are good things for Christians, right? Joy, kindness, prayer, faith, uh, hard work, all sorts of things that we believe are essential to the life of a healthy Christian. But I think the point has been we need to be very thoughtful about the way that we deploy these practices in our lives. And if we aren't thoughtful, if we aren't careful, we run the risk of letting things get out of balance and out of kilter. Because the principle here is that even good things, when they're used the wrong way, can make us unhealthy. And the book of Proverbs, as we've seen under Winnie the Pooh each week, uh, tells it this way. Do you like honey? To which Pooh Bear says enthusiastically, oh yes I do. <laughs> Don't eat too much or it will make you sick. And Pooh Bear certainly famously discovered that having too much of a good thing can leave you in a very awkward spot, a place you don't want to be. And so today we want to kind of conclude that theme. I want to conclude it by examining one final hallmark of the Christian life. And the word for the day is passion. If you have a note sheet with you, you see the question asked, too much passion? When I talk about passion, I mean zeal, I mean fervor, I mean devotion to our Christian faith. Is it such a thing, is there such a thing as having too much passion? And as with every other quality we've explored this summer, I think our first impulse is to recognize that passion, kind of like honey, is, is, is very good, it's sweet, it's a very good, important thing in our spiritual lives. And just a handful of verses that come to mind. Psalm chapter 42, verse 1 says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. What a poetic way of describing the passion with which we yearn for God. Paul writes to his apprentice Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power. Maybe we could paraphrase by saying that. I remind you to be passionate because the spirit God gave you makes you a man or a woman, as the case may be, of passion. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the author says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance for our purposes today. Could we substitute the word passion? Could we let us run with passion? The race marked out for us. This is the author's passionate way of saying, don't give up, don't give up. Never, ever, ever give up. And then maybe my favorite example from Paul's letter to Corinth, chapter nine, verse 24, he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one gets the prize. 
So run in such a way as to get the prize. It is not good enough to just show up. Just showing up gets us nowhere. We have to run with passion. We have to run with perseverance. We have to run with zeal and fervor and commitment. That is the goal, or should be the goal, of every follower of Christ. The Christian lifestyle should be punctuated with deep, deep passion. And as we have said time and time again, the decision to follow Jesus is not one that we can enter into lightly or half-heartedly. Because the decision to follow Jesus is not merely about sitting back in a comfortable church pew or chair, as the case may be, and smiling at all the nice people behind their masks, such as the case may be. The Christian lifestyle is not about showing up once or twice a month to sing the pretty songs, to listen to the sermon, to receive the communion, or to donate to the charities. The Christian lifestyle is not about offering platitudes like, hey, thoughts and prayers. Or, oh, may God bless you. And then just merely going on with our lives. The decision to follow Jesus is revolutionary. The decision to follow Jesus will smash every paradigm in our lives. It's a paradigm smashing choice and it can and will transform every corner of our being. It won't merely be a part of who we are. It will completely redefine who we are. It can't just be one aspect of our lives. It must be the very center of our entire life. We make this choice wholly, completely, entirely, without reservation, or we don't make it at all. There is no in-between. That's what the Bible says. When it comes to our faith, God's very nature requires that we cannot be passive. We cannot be disinterested. We cannot be nonchalant in the way we engage. We can only be passionate. Passion in our faith is called for in every moment, in every circumstance, in every situation. Or is it? And that's kind of the question before us today. I present to you the city, uh, the, the city of Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth. The Christians worshiping in Corinth in the first century were nothing if not passionate. They had earned a reputation as a church that sang louder, that preached more boldly, and just kind of in general made more noise than anybody else. They were known, they were well known as a place of miracles. They were well known as a place, a community of spiritual intensity. They were a place of passion. And yet when the Apostle Paul writes to them about their passion, Look at what he has to say to them. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, and the Corinthians were like, Yeah, come on now, that's us. Paul says, But if I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, and the Corinthians were like, I know who he's talking about. And Paul says, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. 
And he says, and if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast. And Corinthians are like, my ears are burning. And Paul says, but if I don't have love, I gain nothing. I believe the Apostle Paul is offering the Corinthians a word of caution about how they express their passion. And I think that word shows us a few things about finding the sweet spot. And we start here, without love, boldness means nothing. Passionate people are bold people, aren't they? Our passion gives us the motivation and the courage to speak and to act boldly. I'm sure most of us can think of people we've known through the years who fit into this definition. People that are maybe a little bit more quiet, a little bit more reserved until you get onto that topic that they're passionate about. And then they rise up and they speak boldly. You ever see somebody just kind of transform like that in a minute and you think, oh my goodness, where did you come from? But passion has a way of doing that for us, doesn't it? Passionate people are bold people. The passion of the Christian lifestyle lends itself to boldness. The anointing and the baptism of the Holy Spirit only amplifies that boldness. And that means that spirit-filled followers of Jesus are bold, passionate people. I did a quick little uh, project here when I got to this point in my notes, and it's the kind of thing you could do for yourself. I went to my concordance and I looked up the word bold. I went to BibleGateway.com and just typed in the word bold. I wanted to see what happens throughout scripture when we talk about boldness. And I noticed that the word bold or its derivatives, boldly, boldness, bold-ish, probably not a word, but bold words occur many, 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 many times in the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells the story of the early church, the first generation of believers and the word bold appears in that book a disproportionate number of times. So I just went down real quick and I jotted him down. Listen to this. In Acts chapter four, we're told that the first believers are persecuted. And so they gathered together for prayer. And in verse 31, we're told they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. In chapter nine, Saul has his vision on the road to Damascus. He gives his life over to Jesus and is filled with the Holy Spirit. We're then told that he moved about freely in Jerusalem with the other believers, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas go on their first missions trip. And when they get there, they preach to the Jews, but the Jews reject the message. And so they preach to the Gentiles because, hey, he preached to whoever will listen, right? And when they start preaching to the Gentiles, the Jews get mad and they start saying, hey, you shouldn't be telling them all this stuff about God. They have no business with God. They start persecuting Paul and Barnabas. They start spreading lies about them. They start complaining. And in verse 46, the word says, Paul and Barnabas answered them. How do you suppose they answered them? Boldly, boldly. One chapter later, Paul and Barnabas move on to another city. Many come to believe in that place. And the word tells us that Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. Oh, I'm not done yet. In in chapter 18, a man by the name of Paulos, relatively new convert, comes to the city of Corinth. Coincidentally, the very place we're talking about. And in verse 26, we're told he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Page later in chapter 19, we read the 12 men from Ephesus are baptized in the Holy Spirit, speak in other tongues. God, I'm sorry, Paul gathers them together. And in verse 8, it says, and they entered the synagogue and they spoke boldly there for three months. And then here's my favorite, Acts chapter 28, verse 31, the very last verse in the entire book of Acts. 
We find Paul in Rome under house arrest, confined to his quarters, and since he couldn't go out, we're told he invited people in. And why do you suppose Paul invited people into his house? Verse 31, the very final verse in the entire book says he invited them in so he could speak to them with all boldness and without hindrance. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the passion of the gospel. It comes with boldness. Paul is definitely in favor of speaking boldly. But now look again at his warning to the Corinthians, that very first verse. If I speak in the tongue of men or of angels, in other words, I think if I speak boldly, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I think what he's saying is I'm not worth listening to. I can speak as boldly as I want, but if it doesn't come from a place of love, you might as well not listen to me. I'm not worth listening to. Bold actions and passionate, bold words without love, useless. Maybe worse than useless. Maybe passion and boldness without love is actually hampering the work of the gospel. This week, one of our missionary partners, Mark Hausfeld, was delivering a, a formal lecture at, at one of our denomination's Bible schools. It was simulcast on their Facebook page, and so uh, Jessica and Sue and I logged in and, and, and watched his address. And he was speaking on the topic of reaching Muslim people in rural America. So part of his expertise, Mark has shared the gospel with more Muslims than anyone I know over the course of his career. And so he gave not a sermon, not a church service, but a formal lecture on this topic of, of reaching Muslim people, specifically in rural America. And at the end of the lecture, he was uh, available for fielding questions and answers. And somebody asked him, what do you see as the number one obstacle for Christians who wish to share their faith with Muslim people? Now, I've known Mark very, very well for a number of years. I've heard him speak many, many times. And as soon as the question was answered, I thought in my own mind of, of, of what the, the answer might be. As soon as the question was asked, rather, I was trying to think, well, what's he going to say here? And I thought maybe, maybe you could speculate as well. What do you suppose this expert would say is the number one obstacle to reaching Muslims? And, you know, fear. Some of us are afraid. How about lack of knowledge of the gospel? We don't really know what we're supposed to say when we're sharing our faith with other people. How about just like the cultural gaps? Like, you know, Muslim people, when it comes to sharing the gospel, this is not low-hanging fruit. There is deeply ingrained cultural differences between Christianity and Islam, right? Um, all sorts of things come to mind as what are the biggest obstacles in sharing our faith with Muslim people. Uh, Dr. Hausfeld paused and actually thought about it for a moment and then he gave his answer and I was shocked. What's the number one obstacle as you see it, Mark, for Christian people who desire, Christian, American Christian people who desire to share their faith with Muslims? And he pauses for a moment and then he responds and he says this. He says, I think we're too radicalized. I think we're too radicalized. Now, let me put that into context. This address was given on the same day that we got word that suicide bombers killed 13 Marines in Kabul. So this faith in which extremists are strapping bombs to their bodies 
and detonating them to take the lives of Americans, to take the lives specifically of Christians, to harm the innocent, to spread terror, and to establish their own power. That's what they're doing. And Mark, you think we're too radicalized? (laughs) You think we're too radicalized? And he went on to talk about how the Christian mentality, specifically the American Christian mentality, has developed a militaristic attitude towards Islam. And as he went on to explain that, my mind flashed back to watching a presidential debate, not in this last series of elections, I think the one prior to that. Do you remember when there were like 14 or 15 or maybe it was like 28 candidates for the Republican nomination and they would all line up on the stage and we had those debates involving like way too many people. I remember watching one of those debates. There was a candidate who had been touted and frankly was touting himself as a champion of the evangelical faith, somebody whose faith ostensibly should match my own. And so I was curious as to how he would perform in that debate. And the question was asked by the moderator related to acts of terrorism that that were present at that time. What would you do if? And the candidate that I was there to watch answered the question by saying, I would see how many bombs it takes to make the sand glow. Wow. Now look, I'm not anti-military. And I recognize that part of the job of the commander of chief in our nation is in fact to command and utilize and leverage our armed forces. I get that. But when someone who would set them up as a champion of my faith says their first impulse is to bomb somebody into the Stone Age, I'm telling you, church, you lost my vote right in that moment. Unless you think Lest you think that that's because I'm a bleeding heart liberal, let me tell you how horrified I was this week when our current president announced that according to the words of Isaiah chapter six, it was the job of the US military, who will go and who shall I send? And our current president says that's the job of the army and he quoted the prophet by saying, here am I, send me. I wanted to throw up when I heard that. Folks, would you rewind your brains a few months and recall our study of the book of Revelation? That when the political leaders in our world begin to quote the Bible and use it for nationalistic purposes, the Antichrist is closer than we think. And no, I'm not suggesting that our current president is the Antichrist. If you heard my series, you know where I stand on that. No, I'm not suggesting that the Republican uh, candidates uh, five years back were the Antichrist. If you heard my series, you know where I'm standing at. No, I'm not mad at the right. No, I'm not mad at the left. Folks, we're too radicalized. We're too radicalized. We're too radicalized when the word of God is being used as the warrant for spreading death and destruction. Hmm, we're too radicalized. And we're not just radicalized in our attitude about Muslims. I would suggest that we're too radicalized in our attitudes about politics of all sorts, about church doctrine, about masks, about vaccinations, about whatever else you've got, we are too radicalized. The church today would do well to recalibrate the love before we step into the boldness that comes with passion. 
passion involves more than just boldness. When we think about people that are passionate, we often think about how they've developed in their passion, great talent or great ability. But Paul tells us that without love, ability amounts to nothing. Without love, ability amounts to nothing. One of the uh, guilty pleasures of the Martinson family was the 90s medical drama ER. Any ER fans in the room today? Huh? Got a little George Clooney fan club going on at HRCC here. That's okay, you can admit it, you can acknowledge it, it's okay. We know, we know, we know. Uh, one of the characters on ER for, for several seasons was, was Dr. Romano. Rocket Romano was his nickname. He was the head of the surgery and the head of the hospital and the head of this and the head of that and, and everything. Dr. Romano, the character, was the most brilliant, most skilled surgeon. Every student that came to the hospital wanted to study with him because he was the best in the world. Every patient that wanted to come wanted to be operated on by him because he was the best in the world. He could do anything. He could save anybody. Anything that you could want to have happen in an operating room, he had the skill and the ability to make it happened. Here was the problem with Dr. Romano. He was a jerk. He was a real, real class A jerk. I noticed the nurses in our congregation right now are not in going yes. We know him. Okay, right? Right? He was a jerk. And so the students would come, I want to study with him. And then he'd treat them like garbage. And they'd say, you know what? I'm done with him. And the patients would come and say, I want to be operated on by him. And he would treat them with, like garbage. And they would say, you know what, I'll take whoever else he got. Somebody find me an intern, okay? <laughs> you know, like people don't want to be with people like that, which is interesting. You would think, you would think that if you're sick, all that matters is ability. But I think life experience would show us that that actually isn't the case. We don't want doctors like that. We want people who are talented, yes, but we also want people who know how to care. We call it bedside manner, don't we? Verse 2 in the passage I read earlier says this, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, in other words, if I am really, really good at my faith, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. I am nothing. Church, it's not a symbol or a metaphor. There isn't a deeper meaning behind this. Do we understand the doctrine here? God has given all of his people good gifts, all of his people good abilities, spiritual and otherwise, but too often they get misused by passionate people who have overlooked the primacy of love. God gives abilities, but it is our responsibility, it is my responsibility, and it is your responsibility to learn how to use them in a loving way. You might have the gift of prophecy, but use your words lovingly. You might have a gift for boldness, but make sure you use it lovingly. You might have any kind of skill or gift or ability, and Paul says it doesn't matter if you don't know how to use it lovingly. The skill itself is meaningless. One final component of passion deserves our consideration today. Without love, sacrifice yields nothing. Sacrifice. So we talked about boldness, right? We talked about ability. We talked about sacrifice. Three components of passion. 
And we end here by saying even sacrifice itself, without love, sacrifice yields nothing. You know what? I think maybe we in the church world have made this mistake. We have made the mistake of trying to manipulate passion in people in order to get them to sacrifice. And I will submit to you that I do it all the time. When missionaries come to visit and I'm setting up a schedule, you know, for the missionaries, you're going to come, you're going to give us a window, you're going to give us an update, you're going to do this. I will tell them, hey, we're going to, we're going to pass the plate, we're going to receive an offering for you. And they say, well, what should I share? I tell them all the time, well, the missionaries that get the best offerings tend to be the missionaries that tell the best stories. So don't give us statistics and don't talk about this and that and don't tell us about why this happened and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, for God's sake, don't just give us a devotional. Come and tell us a story. I tell them, give us a name. Give us a face. Tug at our heartstrings. Help us connect passionately to your mission because people will sacrifice as they respond to passion. And you know what, church? All of that is true. But sometimes writing the check is the easy part. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes writing the check and dropping it in the offering container, that's the easy part. And I would suggest that the gospel is much broader than that. Now look, I recognize that there is real financial need in this room. And I do not want to dismiss or fail to honor the sacrifices that we've made out of want and out of plenty, right? I get that that's real. But I also recognize that in the broadest sense, in this society where we live, sometimes giving money, even giving extravagantly, even giving sacrificially, sometimes that's a lot easier than actually getting involved. Sometimes that's a lot easier than actually getting involved. And Paul says, you know what? Without love, sacrifice like that, you don't gain anything. It's a wash. Now, from a biblical standpoint, the whole purpose of giving sacrificially, whether you're talking about your money, whether you're talking about your time, your resources, just giving of yourself in the broadest sense. From a biblical standpoint, the whole point is that we are investing in an eternal future. Jesus says, you know, you don't want to invest in things that are going to be destroyed anyhow. You know, you want to invest wisely, a good, eternal, secure return on your investment. That's the point of sacrifice. But Paul says, be careful, because if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but if I do not have love, I get no return on that investment. When he says, I gain nothing. But do we see what he's saying? Nothing happens. You lose your money. You lose your investment. You lose any, any blessing that you might have otherwise expected to receive. I think it is possible to feel passion for something. And two, as a result of that passion to give, 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 give. And yet do so out of a passionate sense of duty rather than love. And that is certainly not the sweet spot in passion. And that is not the heart of the gospel. So here's where I am on this. Passion is a good thing. Just like, this is, you get it? This is the same sermon I've preached like 12 times this summer, right? (laughs) 
Yes, it's a good thing. Please do actually read your Bible and pray and have faith and live with joy and all of those other things we've talked about. Of course, it's a good thing. But like everything else we've talked about this summer, there is a sweet spot. There is a place where passion can get overgrown and go beyond its intended purpose. And when that happens, it has the potential to do more harm than good. And in that sense, maybe there is such a thing as too much passion. We all okay with that? All right, put your notes sheets away. Put your note sheets away. File them somewhere if you took notes. Maybe you could take those out some other time and read them and, and you'll find that it was a good word for you. Now I've got something else to say. When I schedule sermons that I'm going to preach, I usually do it many weeks, actually typically many months in advance. And so I'll come up with topics that I believe the Lord is calling us to, to study or just to dive more deeply into and we you know, put the calendar together. In this case, the whole Sweet Spot series kind of came out of a brainstorming session that Pastor Garrett and I had last January, as I recall. Uh, and then over the course of the spring, we, Garrett and the rest of the staff and I continued to brainstorm specific topics that might fit into that category. What about joy? We could do a too much joy. What about, you know, what about this? What about that? And kind of made a list. And, and sometime in May, I sat down with the summer schedule and just kind of mapped out, okay, we're going to put this one here. I'm going to do this one. Uh, I remember, you know, certain ones wanted to go on certain days and then kind of fill in the gaps. And, and so by the end of May, I had a list of, all the topics for all the sermons. And at some point in the month of May, I said, you know, what we'll do is on the very last Sunday in August, Sunday the 29th, I'll wrap up the series by preaching this, you know, sweet spot for passion sermon. Is there such a thing as too much passion? And so that's how we've arrived at the topic I've presented to you today. And I certainly will affirm that in some ways, too much passion is a problem in the church today. But I don't think it's a problem in this church. On the list of things that concern me about HRCC these days, too much passion in our faith doesn't rank very highly. On the contrary, I'm concerned that our passion is waning. I'm concerned because I am recognizing more complacency than I am used to seeing at HRCC. I'm concerned because while I have most definitely seen definite evidence of passion about politics and about foreign policy and about race relations and about socioeconomics and about masks and about vaccines and about public schools and about our neighborhoods and everything else, working from home and this and that and the other thing, I see less and less evidence of passion for the love of Jesus. The love that the Bible tells us, compels us to, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others, and take on the very nature of a slave. That's what the Bible says about passion and the evidence of the passion for our faith. And until we're there, I don't think there's reason for us to worry about having missed the sweet spot. And so today I choose to stay true to the calendar, the preaching calendar that I set up in May. If I wanted to change it, I would. I certainly have at other times. But I feel like the epilogue to this message 
And indeed, the epilogue to the series is that we should audit where we're at and take stock of what word is for today and what word is just important to have perhaps for another time. Today, I think the word is, where's our passion? And having recognized the gap between where we are and where we want to be, it now falls to us to close that gap. Because passion isn't something that happens to us. It's a decision that we make. There's a song that we like to sing here at HRCC. Um, I think it's a favorite for a lot of people. People will mention it. It's a set of fire down in my soul that I can't contain and I can't control. It's a good song and we'll, we'll sing it, Johnny. You can schedule it whenever you like, right? I just want to add a little bit of a nuance to our understanding of what that song says. As a matter of scripture, set a fire down in my soul that I can't contain, that I can't control. As a matter of scripture, that fire's already been set. If you are a follower of Jesus, I don't believe that you need to ask the Holy Spirit to come set a fire. I believe that fire has already been set. But the responsibility of caring for it and cultivating it into a blaze that cannot be contained, that's my responsibility. That's not God's responsibility. That's, that's my responsibility. Perhaps you'll remember the words of the prophet who told us that a smoldering ember, you're not going to extinguish it, right? God did not put your fire out. And so you do not need to ask him to come light it again. Again, I'm just kind of being a little doctrine nerd here. But I think it's important that we recognize the difference. On the contrary, I think scripture is very clear that the responsibility of cultivating that flame into a blaze that burns brightly, in other words, the responsibility for taking care of our passion, it is ours. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're told, do not put out the Spirit's fire. The prophet already told us he won't put it out. But here we're warned saying, don't you put it out. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. We already referenced today Paul's letter to Timothy where he says, fan that thing into flame. Because that's the Spirit that God has given us. Revelation chapter 2, by the Spirit, John writes to the church of Ephesus. And he says, you know what you're struggling with right now? You've forgotten your first love. There's that connection between love and passion, right? A couple of letters later, he writes to the church in Sardis and he says, you know what you need to do? I know you feel weak right now, but you need to strengthen what remains. Oh God, make us stronger. And the Spirit says to the church, no, you, you, you need to strengthen what remains. Yes, I will help, but you need to strengthen what remains. And then he writes to the church in Laodicea, he goes, you know, you guys are only lukewarm. You talk about fire, but you're only lukewarm. You're going to have to pick a lane here. It's going to have to be cold or it's going to have to be hot. You've got to pick a lane. 
And I submit those to us today, not because I think they specifically describe HRCC. Please understand, I'm not, if you're familiar with the references here, I'm not suggesting that God's about to spit us out of his mouth or something like that. I'm not trying to suggest, oh my goodness, this is, I submit them to us because I think we need to remind ourselves today that the word of God says your passion and the fire that burns within you for the love of Jesus Christ is your responsibility And I think that over the course of the last 18 months in particular, maybe longer than that if we were, you know, to get very, very self-analytical here. Over the course of the last 18 months in particular, there's been a lot of complacency in every area of our lives, right? A lot of us that used to get up and go to work every day do it at home in our pajamas and You know, my kids started school this week and there's already been a day or two where they were swamped with homework for the very first time. Oh, sacre bleu, you know? It's just things have been difficult in so many ways, haven't they? But they've also been easy. In the sense that it's been easy to just be complacent. And so we don't go out of our houses anymore. How many of us started ordering our groceries online when we were scared that the virus was going to make our house explode? And then 18 months later, we're like, you know what, that's easy. I don't even have to go to Walmart anymore. (laughs) And we still do it. I, I don't know if that applies to anybody here, but I see a lot of it in the world. How many of us, you know, stopped getting together with the guys or the ladies, you know, for, for fun and for fellowship, Christian or otherwise? 18 months ago, because we were told to shelter in place. And here we are 18 months later, and we're still not doing it. Can I tell you, can I confess to you? We we used to have a prayer meeting here in Downers Grove, a bunch of pastors of local area churches. I went every week to pray with these guys. Big prayer meeting. And when the lockdown came in March of 2020, we, we canceled that. We're still not doing it. You know what I mean? Like we're still, and it just dawned on me the other day, like, why are we doing that anymore? Fear. Why are we doing that? And I think it's fear. Yeah. But I think it's also complacency. I think we stopped and then we just forgot to start again. You know what I'm saying? We got used to doing nothing. We got used to doing nothing. And people of God, we need to be warned. We need to be aware that it's a bad thing to get used to doing nothing. And so HRCC, just with those words, and I hope that you receive them in the spirit of what I've been preaching today, because boy, if I miss the sweet spot on a sermon about the sweet spot, (laughs) do I end up looking like a dope? So here I am speaking boldly, but will you receive them out of the place of love? HRCC, I invite us all to a decision today to rekindle our passion for the love of Jesus in our lives. That's that's the decision I want to invite you to today. A lot of times in churches we close by, well, I'm going to invite you to a place of decision. And if you, and what does that mean, right? If you want to ask Jesus into your heart. By all means, if you want to do that today, the doors are open. But I don't know that that's the decision that's primary for most of us today. So could we have a good old-fashioned altar call? But maybe make it a little bit different?
Kelly, could you give me just some music? I don't, pastors don't give altar calls without keyboard music in the back, right? Like, I'm not sure how that worked in the first century church, but clearly, clearly revival was impeded by the lack of keyboard instruments. Church, I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to take a moment and just kind of pray our way through the end of this service. I'm going to pray some words to the Lord. If you agree with them in your heart, you're going to just add your amen. I'm going to periodically address you and give you a way of responding to the invitation that I believe the Spirit has put before us today. Father, we come to you today, a people. people who confess that it has just been hard. It has been hard to love this year. It has been hard to love well and to love faithfully. And because of that, God, it's it's been hard to be passionate. We've been afraid. We've gotten really good at that. We've gotten angry. We've gotten good at that. We've gotten complacent. And so we bring you out of a spirit of confession today. This offering and this acknowledgement that says we're just kind of broken in this regard. But just like we prayed for our sick brothers and sisters this morning, we might be pressed down. We are not crushed. That ember that you lit in our hearts when we laid our lives before you for the very first time, it's not gone. And we know it's not gone because we stand upon the promise of your word today that you don't blow candles out. You do not extinguish hot coals. And so while there may be places in our lives in which, there may be regards in which, okay, the fire isn't exactly a furnace. It's not a blaze of glory for our Savior Jesus. Yes, that might be true, but it's not dead. It's not dead. And so I pray today, Lord, that you would help each one of us to connect with that fire within us that you have caused to burn. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to receive and apply the word that you gave to to a young man who was leading in a very, very difficult time in the first century when through a a wiser mentor, you said, hey, buddy, just just fan it into flame. Fan it into flame. Fan it into flame. Because it is in you HRCC, that gift of God is in you through the laying on of hands. That gift of God is in you. And I've had conversation with enough of you over the course of the past few months to know that that realization has at times been a struggle. Is God still moving in my life? Is God still moving? Where is God in the midst of this? Well, hear the word of the Lord today. That gift is within you. Through the laying on of hands, 
your brothers and your sisters. Church family, my words are for you right now with your eyes still closed. I would just like to know that I can pray for you. And so if your decision today is, God, I want to respond to this invitation to rekindle my passion, to begin to care for the fire again, to see that it burns more brightly, to see that it burns more deeply. God, I want to be impacted by the love of Jesus in a way that transforms every part of my life. God, I believe that the coming months, you have more for me than you have ever had before. God, I want to run the race in such a way to win. Church, do you remember when Pastor Garrett told us about participation trophies this last year? Do you remember that he said in the kingdom of God, that's not a thing? I want to run this race to win. I want to absolutely destroy the competition. Not my brothers and sisters in Christ, because we're running together. But that enemy, I want him to eat our dust. I want him to eat our dust. And Lord, we believe that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that can become our reality. Church, if that's where you're at today with your eyes still closed, would you just put up a hand so I can pray for you? And not just so I can pray for you, would you put up a hand? Leave them up. That's okay. Leave them up. Because in your body right now, you can feel that decision you're making. That's where I don't call you. I want you to make a choice today. I want you to make a choice today. God, you see the hands of faithful children today. You see the hands of sons and daughters who are saying, Jesus, there's got to be more than what I've been living in over the past few months. There's got to be more. Some of us are saying, we remember that there used to be more, and we recognize the ways in which we've slipped, the ways in which we've just kind of grown complacent. Some of us are saying, God, I don't know that I've ever really even experienced it in my own life, but I want more today. I want more. God, that's the heart that you're looking for today. So we speak against condemnation of the enemy who might be whispering in ears right now, oh, no, this isn't for you. You're always going to be a bench warmer. No, we say no to that. We say no to that. We speak about the condemnation of the enemy who right now is reminding us of just how sinful and naughty we actually are. We're not going to hear that today. We're going to listen instead to the Holy Spirit of God who says, Beloved child, come. Beloved child, come. Rise up and enter into the life that I have prepared for you. And God, would you cause us to always be mindful caring for and cultivating that flame. That the expressions of love we have one for another would be the very evidence of the passion that is within us. That the expressions of love we have for lost people would come before the boldness with which we speak to them. That the sweet spot in our lives would be their very place where we live and
in such a way, Lord, that it would burn brightly. Church, you can put your hands down. Pastor Garrett has a word for us. In July of 2019, the Spirit of God gave me a word. I did not know what it meant until right now, in this moment. I was in my living room by myself and I was praying and speaking the Lord. And as I concluded the prayer time, I got up and I had asked the Lord, what, what do you have in store? What's, what's coming? And I got no response. So I concluded my prayer time and I stood up. And as I was about to leave the room, the Holy Spirit just said to me, word for word, he said, I have a nomadic revival that will be like discovering fire for the very first time. This was July of 2019. And right now, as Dan is ministering, I feel like I understand what he meant by that. You know, a nomad is someone who's self-sufficient. I believe the challenge of the Spirit in this season is who's going to be self-sufficient in their faith and not rely on someone else or something else to carry it for them, but it's going to stoke the flame themselves. And you know what's going to happen? Not that the flame wasn't there. It was always there. But it's going to come back. And it's going to be like discovering fire again for the very first time. Church, will you receive the challenge today of the Holy Spirit? No one is going to do it for you. You have to do it yourself. You have to stoke the flame yourself. And it will be there. And it will grow. And you will be amazed. Just receive that challenge today. So here's how we're going to do this. In the moment, I'm going to give a word. This is what's going to be a song. This is a, to your, um, you're going to dismiss yourself. I invite you to do that quietly. If you've got kids in the kids' church, you're going to want to go grab them. Uh, just respect the time of our teachers. I'm going to ask Kelly to stay here and give us a little more music. And she'll be ready. You're good? You're good? Okay. Um, and I want to just open up the office. And I want to practice what we've talked about today. I'm going to put my mask back on if you're concerned about that. It's okay. But I said it a few times without facilitating about the gift that lies within you by the laying on of hands. Folks, we are all ministers, and so we can you can do that one for another, and I invite you to do that. But I, I think it would be good for you to come forward if you desire and have one of your pastors just lay hands on. I know I told you I'd talk to you today, and I will. If you, instead of coming here, if you want to hang out back near where John sits, in a few moments I'll come back there and talk with you guys, but we're going to pray first, okay? We're going to pray here first, and so we'll, we'll figure a retreat out another time if we need to do that. But Garrett and I are going to be here, we're going to lay hands on people today, and we want to see the power of God manifest in their lives. So Father, we receive what you have for us today. We recognize you're calling us in a new and a fresh way. We recognize, Lord, that your word can be spoken. And, and God, you give us glimpses. And we don't even see the next step. We don't even see the fullness of that. Sometimes for years later, as Garrett has shared with us today. Today is one of those days. And so help us, Lord, not to just sit back and try and figure it all out. But to receive in faith what, what maybe today is just a glimpse. But it's that next step. It's that next step. Would you minister to us and through us today as we respond to your invitation. 
Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, church, if you're going to dismiss yourself at this point, that's absolutely fine. I just ask that you do it to the foyer so that our conversation and our noise isn't distracting to those who might want to stay. If you'd like to come forward and pray with a pastor, you're welcome to do that. Hallelujah.